Let's go to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, we will have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. We also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room, little racks beneath the seats. I say it every week, but if you don't own a Bible of your very own, we would invite you to take that physical one home. Uh, they're not the fanciest Bibles, but they'll hold up for a while because they're hard covers. All right? uh, the, the reason why we'd say something like that is not because we you know, have some metric where giving out Bibles is a good thing, although it is. We are genuinely convinced that God uses his word for a number of really important things, but the top shelf thing he uses it for, the reason that stands above and more beautiful than all the other reasons, is that he uses it to reveal himself to his people. We want, he wants you to know him. Our God is a knowable God. Uh, uh, he makes himself known, delights in making himself known, wants you to know him, and the scriptures are the means by which he does that. And so if you don't have a Bible, that puts you at a disadvantage, but you can take ours, and I'll call it a good thing. All right, so we're pretty deep now, pretty deep now into our effort to walk through the letters of the seven churches, all right? Uh, and if you're new to the Bible, maybe new to the church thing, uh, those are seven mini letters that kind of sit as an introduction to the larger letter of Revelation, all right? That's the best framework that I can give you. Mini letters as an introduction to the rest of Revelation. And so while Revelation is given uh, to all of God's people for all of our good, uh, its original context, the, the reason it was written uh, was to... Uh, to these seven specific congregations in first century Asia Minor, or we could say modern day Turkey, right? That's how that works. Uh, And so before Jesus gets into uh, what he wants to say to all of these uh, churches as a collective whole, he gives each of these churches an individualized, a personalized introduction, right? Ergo, letters to seven churches, all right? And it's these initial seven letters that serve as the introduction. Uh, they provide a lens, you could say, uh, for understanding the rest of what's going on in the letter of Revelation. And let's be honest here. We can say the quiet part out loud. That's hard to understand sometimes. All right? There's a lot of apocalyptic imagery in the letter of Revelation. Uh, it's speaking of future realities that haven't happened yet. There's a lot of weird stuff there. But the letter's purpose, its purpose is to speak to these seven churches in a way that both encourages them through hardships and corrects them for, to, like, towards repentance of sin. But what's really, really cool is that Jesus does those two things in a way that also does it in a public way that provides for the same instruction to all of God's people coming after them. Small task, right? Is that something you got the ability to pull off writing on a regular basis? Jesus writes that way. So far, we've looked at four of these letters. Uh, The church at Ephesus, the church at Smyrna, the church at Pergamum, and the last week, what was it? Thyatira. All right. Good job. All right. So, so far we looked at these four churches. Four churches with very, very different personalities, very different strengths, very, very different weaknesses. Some of these churches are really big and have a lot of people and a big budget. They have lots of cultural influence. And some of them are really, really small and seem to just get kicked around by the communities a lot. Which one are you signing up for? Some of these churches have healthy doctrine and healthy leaders. And for some of these churches, it's more accurate to call them a dumpster fire. That was Thyatira last week. Intentionally running into sin and idolatry. But now it's time to get into our fifth letter. All right. So, so what do you think the over-under is for this one? Is it a good church or a bad church? Nope. <laughs> it's another dumpster fire. For those of you who cheated, who's it written to? Sardis. All right, look at verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 1. It says, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, 
the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. All right, we'll call a time out there. We'll come back to verse one in a second. All right, so it's the church at Sardis, right? Sardis, what a name. And, and so what do we know about Sardis as a town? Well, quite a bit, all right? And it's a healthy bit. Uh, like Pergamum that we looked at a couple of weeks ago, uh, Sardis was the capital city of its own kind of mini kingdom for a while, the kingdom of Lydia, right? Uh, and so rewind the history back. Uh, the time that this letter is being written in Revelation, we, we would call it the Roman era, the Roman period, right? But before the Roman period, you had the Hellenistic period, all right? And so uh, Alexander the Great uh, united all the Macedonian and Greek city-states into kind of one kingdom and then went on to conquer the rest of the known world like and he did all that like before the age of 30 as a completely unrelated question what have you done with your life (laughs) sardis was one of the places that was conquered by baby-faced alex all right sardis was one of the places he went and attacked and conquered it but we can keep going further back in the history book than that the reason Alexander the Great had to conquer Sardis is because before doing so, Sardis was a part of the Medo-Persian Empire. It had already been conquered by Cyrus the Great. There's a lot of greats in this story. Cyrus the Great had conquered the city a couple hundred years before Alex came onto the scene. So like most of the other places these letters are addressed to, I got to visit the ruins of ancient Sardis last November when I went to Turkey. and So I got some pictures for you. Can, can I see the pictures, Mr. Brent? This obviously is a map, and the red dot obviously is where the ruins of Sardis would be located today. Um, if you're looking at, you know, for it on your own map, you want to pull up your Google map or whatever, uh, it's next to a newer, more modern city uh, called Sart, S-A-R-T. All right? So type in Sart, Turkey, and look for the, all the museum icons. You'll find the ruins. All right? Like most of these seven churches, uh, like these seven cities, there's no continuity uh, between ancient Sardis and the, the city that's there today. It was completely destroyed at one point and then later rebuilt. Uh, but in this case, they did name the new city almost exactly like the old city. So they, they like leaned into that name. Um, so uh, in, the, in the five letters uh, that we've looked at so far, or so five letters in, we could say, uh, we, we started looking just, or four letters in, we started looking just south of Izmir. Let me go back to that map one. We started in Izmir, which is right there in the center of Turkey uh, on the coast. Uh, and we started just south of Izmir, which is where Turkey, uh, Ephesus is, excuse me. You go up, a, you know, a couple, 10 miles or so, 20 miles. You get to Izmir, which is where uh, Smyrna was. And you keep going up. And we went up to Pergamum, which was kind of near the top. And then we started making our way back down. And so Thiot, uh, um, Thyatira and, and was, was a little south of there. And then now we're to uh, Sardis, and we'll keep going south. The, the rest of the way. Um, so five letters in, we started going up, and now we're working our way back down. We'll keep going in that direction for the next couple of weeks. Uh, now, like, let me see the next picture. And this is what it looks like when you pull off the highway. It, it's just right off the highway. That's cool. <laughs> um, if you go to modern Sart, Turkey today, and go a little bit, uh, I think it's east of there, and you'll keep driving on the highway, and then there's some billboards, and there's a gas station. All right? And then you pull off the road, and you drive about... Another 45 seconds and you get to this. That's a big deal, right? The ruins of Sardis um, that have been excavated so far sit in kind of three distinct uh, stages running up the side of a really, really big mountain. And so this would be the lowest stage. This is like the bottom of the mountain and then the mountain's like behind you going 
going up. All right, and so um, most of what you see here makes up the first stage. And so there's this small marketplace, the Gore, that's in the foreground there. Uh, and then right behind that, that really impressive looking building, that's a Roman gymnasium. All right. Uh, and then the Roman baths are located right behind the gymnasium that's kind of connected to, you would walk through that building structure to get into uh, the Roman baths. And then just off screen to the right uh, is a massive, um, massive synagogue. All right, let me see the next picture. And this is the money shot, right? This is what everybody going to ancient Sardis wants to, to see. It's the gym. Um, don't think basketball court, though. You got to think first century Greco-Roman world. You have to think naked wrestling and foot races. Actually, you know what? Don't think of that. (laughs) See, the reason why everybody heading to Sardis wants to visit this site is because this building is, let's be honest, it's quite impressive. It's amazing. Um, Let me see the next slide. But it's kind of deceptive when you're looking at it through a picture as to how big it actually is. That doorway, uh, that archway that was in the first picture, makes you think it's kind of like this two-level. That, that doorway off to the left there, this thing, this thing is huge. It's an incredibly imposing structure, just kind of sitting in a plane right at the foot of, of, of a mountain. And, um, then go to the next picture. These are the Roman baths right behind that structure. This is the second of three pools. Did you know that Roman baths had three pools in them? You know what they're called? You're going you're gonna to get, there's a hot bath, and a cold bath, and a tepid bath. <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> In Latin, it would be the calidarium, the frigidarium, and the tepidarium. Latin's not as hard as we think it is. <laughs> um, so you got a gym, you got the baths, but then the other major piece is the synagogue. All right, let me see the next picture. This is the remains of what is believed to be the largest synagogue in the ancient non-Judean world. So you get outside of Israel, get outside of where all the Jews would be located, and this is the largest synagogue that they've ever found as far as archaeological sites are concerned. Absolutely massive. Supposedly held over a thousand people. Bigger than our church. That roof obviously is not original. It's a temporary awning to protect the floor. Um, I'm sure it's hard to see from that far away. Uh, but on the ground there, there's a design. Can you see it? It's, it's a mosaic. So covering the entire floor of this thousand-person building is millions of tiny little tiles making up all sorts of designs and images and inscriptions. It's a really, really pretty thing. It's gorgeous, actually. And so they, 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 they were digging down, and they, go, they were like, uh-oh, we probably ought to protect this. And so they built this like canopy thing to, to be over it and to, to protect everything. Um, but the mosaic isn't the most impressive thing in the room. Up at the front, you can see a bunch of marble, right? There was a sort of a choir loft-looking thing. That's where the, the elders of the synagogue would sit. But there's also a massive marble table for laying the Torah across as, as they were using it for public reading. Now, let me see the next slide. That table is much, much bigger than you think it is. Let, let me see the next slide. So our group, as we were traveling to all these different places, we, we did Bible studies of the seven churches, and uh, they, they found out that 
I was the pastor type person, and so they made me do one. Um, So I got assigned the Bible study for Sardis. And when you're assigned the Bible study for Sardis, and you've got this massive table, where are you going to preach from? (laughs) Don't act like you would make a different decision. But there's something important that we need to pay attention to, and I'm, I'm pretty sure you can tell even from that far away. Um, what's on the side of the table? Do, do Jewish people use an eagle as an emblem? They didn't. Who does? So lots of different groups, but during the time period that this letter was written and the time period that this table is being used, that's a Roman emblem, right? And so this is the first sign of something majorly wrong in the culture of Sardis. The largest Jewish synagogue outside of Judea is right next door to the naked sports complex and is full inside of incredibly ornate mosaics and imperial Roman imagery. Does that tip our cards to something? You remember the problems that were going on in Thyatira? The problems that were going on in Pergamum? seems like those problems are also present in Sardis as well, right? But there's another issue uh, with the city, and it's one that I've already kind of alluded to, and maybe you caught it or you didn't. Uh, Sardis is built going up into the side of a mountain, Uh, and so we weren't allowed to go to the next stage up. I don't know if it was closed for some kind of repairs, or we just didn't pay the right kind of money to that for that to be a part of the tour i don't know right? but halfway up the mountain you get to the ruins of an equally massive temple so as big as the as as the the synagogue is this temple is to artemis and it's as big right um but then looking past the temple by the way this isn't my picture i stole it from wikipedia all right but i'm sure my picture would look as awesome all right So looking past the temple, you keep going up the mountain, and that mountain, the top of that mountain is the Acropolis, the city hill. And on top of that mountain, there were more temples. You couldn't fit Artemis' temple up there, so they had to build it down. But up on top of that would be more temples and a really, really impressive citadel, a defensive structure. On top of the Acropolis was a massive stone working with walls and inside of more walls in order to defend the city. And the citadel dates back long before the time of Alexander and long before the time of Cyrus the Great. Both conquered the city. And you may be thinking to yourself, well, if, if, if they've got this really impressive defensive structure, they've got one of the best known examples in the ancient world of being able to defend your city, how did Sardis keep getting conquered? And the answer is that the most impressive embattlements in the world, it doesn't matter how good your defenses are, they cannot protect you from your own stupidity. That's Sardis' story. In 549 uh, B.C., when Cyrus the Great was sieging the city of Sardis, uh, they, they weren't getting anywhere. The siege wasn't working so much. That is, until a soldier standing guard on the wall leaned over too far and his helmet fell on the ground. And thinking that nobody was paying attention, he walked down the steps and went out through a secret door at the base of the wall to retrieve his helmet. Cyrus's guys are going, we could probably do something with that. And so they send the army right through the door. And Sardis is captured. A couple hundred years after that, Antiochus III 
is ruling the Seleucid uh, kingdom. That's the kingdom that split off from the Greek kingdom that Alexander put together. You remember it splits apart, the Seleucid kingdom. Uh, and Antiochus III is the king there. And he has a cousin who tries to seize some power from him. And he holds up in Sardis. He locks himself up in that citadel. A guy named Achaeus. Achaeus holds up, but he knows he's got nowhere to run. He can't go anywhere, and so he's looking for any option he can to get out of town. Uh, but instead of waiting out Antiochus, um, a, a plot is formed uh, by some men representing another kingdom who know Antiochus, and they pretend to be allies who want to sneak Achaeus out of town. And so they show up in the middle of the night. They're like, hey, Achaeus, we got you. We can do this. We, we know of this other secret passage, and we can get you out of here. Achaeus goes, I love that plan. And they lead him out. Instead of leading him to safety, they take him to Antiochus III, who summarily executes him. The moral of the story, it's a story that's told by a famous Greek historian named Polybius. Polybius tells this story as a cautionary tale of trusting the wrong people. The city of Sardis, despite its impressive embattlements, despite its impressive defensive position and impregnable citadel, the city also has a few incredibly public, incredibly embarrassing stories of failure created by their own downfall. That's what Sardis is walking around with as the legacy of Sardis. So what do those stories and others like it have to do with the church there? Well, Look at the second half of verse 1. Jesus says this, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. All right, so Jesus tells them, I know who you really are. I know you. You've got the appearance of really great things going on. You have an incredible uh, reputation that you built for yourself. Everyone looking at you from the outside believes that things are going really, 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 really well in Sardis. But I know just how hollow it actually is. You certainly have the appearance of life. I get that. But I see through the veneer. I see through the facade. You're actually dead. He says. We've been trying to pay attention to how Jesus introduces himself in each of these letters. It always tips the cards as to uh, what the letter is going to be about. But in this case, Jesus simply repeats something that seems innocuous. He seems to just repeat something he already said about himself in chapter 1. And so it would be easy, I think, to overlook it. Easy to assume that there's nothing special going on here. But I think Jesus is repeating himself on purpose. I think he's doubling down on something. He's he's reiterating that he stands alone as the one with sovereign authority over this church. Sardis isn't making the rules up as they go. They don't get to define the terms. No, Jesus is in charge here. Uh, And so Jesus does indeed see every single moment of what's going on in Sardis. He sees every action. He sees every inaction. He even sees every motive. Jesus has never once from eternity past to eternity to come, Jesus has never once been an inattentive guard. And what's more, he's the one actively holding on to these churches. He's not merely a sober-eyed watchman on duty. No, he is the Lord and master of these churches, and he is intimately involved in their faithful management. And so what, 
What does the perfectly attentive master and manager of the Sardesian church see that concerns him so much? I mean, we, we, don't, we don't see any report here of them being guilty of sexual sin. Jesus, he doesn't get on to them for them dabbling into you know, the, the theology and practices of the pagan cults. Like He specifically calls those things out in Thyatira and in Pergamum. We don't see that here. No, he just calls them spiritually dead. So what does he mean by dead then? I mean, is it like a vitality thing? Do they need to uh, like think about hiring some church revitalization expert to come in and do some consulting work? Is that how they're going to fix their problem? Did Sardis need to uh, get some new greeters at the door who, are, who smile a little bit better than the other guys? Put some more charismatic faces to greet people in there? Some more energy? Did their worship team fall into a bit of a rut? I hate it when that happens. Lots of room to blame there. Oh, I know, I know. Maybe the church should take out a loan and they should build a family life center right next to their worship space so that the people will choose to hang out there instead of the naked sports complex next door. That'll really help them reach their community. Sure that a nice recreational ministry plan would really breathe some life into that church. So if you haven't been here long enough and haven't developed a taste for my uncanny sarcasm... Let me be absolutely clear. Charismatic greeters and creative worship teams and even church buildings with recreational space are not bad things. They're not. They're not. They can be used for incredible purposes for God's glory and for the church's good. Absolutely so. They can be tools leveraged for better ministry. Absolutely so. But are we at least all on the same page that most of the stuff in Christendom that gets pushed forward as the way to finally breathe life into a church is not on Jesus' list of ways to breathe life into a church? Can we be honest about that? See, the fact that, that Sardis may have, they may have even had first century versions of these things. They may have had their own versions of this stuff that everybody looked at. They had the appearance of life. They had the appearance of health. Their reputation was incredible. I bet there were things in Sardis that all the churches down the road from them wished they had. There was a veneer of something that left everybody else impressed except, except for the perfect Lord and manager who was attentively standing watch. But the one who sees all and owns all and rightly manages all. He says, Sardis, I know who you really are. I'm not fooled or distracted by the facade. You're asleep at the gate all over again. You're not actually standing watch. So, so what is Jesus concerned with for Sardis? Look at verse 3. He says, remember then... Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. All right, so what is the main issue leading to the spiritual death pronouncement on Sardis? Uh, well, we're not told explicitly what it is. We're just not. But based on some clues here and then based on some other clues that we see eventually in verse 5 and then based on what we know about the culture of the city and kind of the, the theological dynamics of what's going on, our best guess, our, our best, most educated guess is that they struggled to publicly identify with Christ. 
to publicly identify with him. Despite the good things going on, despite the reputation that they had built up, uh, they seem to have downplayed the whole, I'm with Jesus part of following Jesus. They seem to have excelled in gathering a fine show of Christian-ish accoutrement. That as a church, organizationally speaking, they actively ran away from the exclusivity claims of Jesus, exclusivity claims of Christ. The largest synagogue in the non-Judean ancient world, there's a reason it was built in Sardis. A very, very real reason. Antiochus III, as in, as in the same king that we talked about earlier, that guy, he resettled thousands of Jews in Sardis during what's known as the Jewish diaspora. All right? And so Jews made up a massive amount of the population of the town of Sardis uh, when this letter was being written. An overwhelming amount. Uh, much more than the other cities that we've looked at so far. All right? Now, if you weren't here, maybe you just don't remember, uh, we said over previous weeks as we've kind of dealt with this issue uh, in other locations, uh, the Jews typically, because of some really bad stories in the past, got special permission to exempt themselves from all of the kind of imperial cult celebrations of the city. Right? They knew not to mess with the Jews in that one. How do you think that worked in Sardis? You better exempt them. You're going to have a mob on your hands. And so that's probably going on in Sardis, but we're not 100% sure. And the reason we're not 100% sure is because they also made a pretty big deal about putting Roman eagle emblems on their Torah table. Not something that you're willing to do if syncretism is not on the menu for you. We're not certain which things mattered to, Jew to the Jewish community there and which ones didn't. We don't have any writings of kind of how things worked there for them. And it's equally possible, I think, that the entire town played games with syncretism. Just went along to get along, combine all the things into one pig pot and go. And the theories abound. They really do. Um, you start reading through history books of this stuff and commentaries of this stuff. Uh, there, there's a lot of debate over what Jesus is actually addressing here. And so maybe it was social pressure. They, they caved into that kind of stuff. Maybe, maybe the Christians just, just gave in to get some relief and breathe a little bit. I could see that. Maybe they loved Jesus, but they were really cowardly. They're just trying to avoid persecution for a moment. So Jesus calls them on it. But the best theory, I think, is that because there's this supposed appearance of life, I think it's more likely that Jesus didn't factor into their calculus at all. They had worked and worked and worked to build an impressive and lively reputation. Things that other people would go, man, I want that. But they seem to have, have loved that reputation more than they loved Jesus. If you've ever been in a church setting like this, you can, you can probably smell it from a mile off. I know I've, I've kind of developed that skill. Somewhere along the way, decisions start getting made based on pragmatism rather than faithfulness. Um, on, a, on a public receptiveness of something rather than what's clearly commanded by God. And it never starts out, not even close, it never starts out as a rejection of God's command or design. Nobody's really that dumb, I think. Uh, it always starts out with a supposed genuine attempt to bridge what they see as a gap between people and the church. And because there's this gap, we gotta, we got to close the gap by coming back over here. And, it, and it's usually cast in some kind of missional vocabulary to, to be all things to all people. And so things get justified that would normally not get justified because, you know, mission. 
And then decision after decision gets made and step after step is taken. And a church eventually finds itself publicly successful in many things, but miles and miles away from where King Jesus wants them to be. And so Jesus says, wake up. Wake up. You've built an impressive citadel, but you're not actually guarding the gate. Last I checked, you folks in Sardis are supposed to know a thing or two about what happens when thieves come in the middle of the night. So you're going to fix your problem or not? Wake up, because I'm on my way. I'm coming. You better be ready. Look at verse 4. It says, you, yet, you still have, or yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Verse 5, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Um, he, who has a, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So apparently, the deterioration of the Sardesian church, it didn't reach every single corner of the Sardesian church. There, were, there was a faithful remnant left in Sardis. It's an oft-repeated story for God's people, right? But then Jesus says something here that I didn't mention in the history lesson, but probably makes sense to mention now. Uh, The one industry in Sardis that kind of got out of Sardis and made a name for themselves was a red linen. They were really proud of it. They would dye it in the city and sell it all over the region. And, And so what's probably going on here, best guess, is that Jesus is intentionally playing off yet another thing that would have been assumed and understood in, in Sardis. And so uh, just imagine what it would be like to, to see somebody walk by in your town with red clothes on. Your town had a hand in that. You may have, you may have been a part of that. Worked down at the plant for that. Uh, imagine going to the town over and seeing a bunch of people wearing red stuff. That's you. There's, there's, there's a, a pride in that. I mean, business was good. But Jesus says that there's a lot of folks, self-professed Christians in Sardis, walking around with soiled clothes. Even ones who aren't aware that their clothes are dirty. But Jesus says next that the ones who conquer, the ones who endure, they will be given bright white garments. You know, you know what looks the exact opposite of red clothing? <laughs> bright white. This is the first of two check-down moments in, in these two verses. Uh, if you haven't been here, um, we, we've, we've kind of put forward this tool for helping us understand things that, that aren't immediately understood in, in apocalyptic literature. And so the obvious question is, what do white garments represent? Well, we're not free to just make something up. We use the tool, all right? And so uh, we've, we've been learning the check-down system. So we, the, like a quarterback running through his, his route tree, like we, we, we start at the best option and work our way down to the dump pass, all right? Um, so the first question is, does, does John explain the image here? And the answer is no. He doesn't explain the image. Okay, okay, cool, cool, cool. So what's question number two? Does John explain it somewhere else in this letter? And this time the answer is mostly no. He doesn't explain it. Uh, it's never explained verbatim, but it is a picture that he chooses to use like a half dozen other times uh, throughout the book of Revelation. They, and they all seem to have the exact same meaning. He doesn't seem to use it for different purposes. Purposes? Wow, my voice cracked weird. Right. Purposes. 
He, he, seem, he doesn't seem to use it for different purposes at different times. It's always kind of for the same purpose. It's always the wardrobe of the good guys, right? And so then we move to the third question in the checkdown system. Okay, is this picture used somewhere else in the Bible? And the answer this time is yes. Yes, it is. Zechariah 3.3. 3. Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him, said, or to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. So we're told explicitly in another uh, apocalyptic kind of writing, this time from the Old Testament book of Zechariah, that, that dirty clothes represents iniquity. God takes his iniquity away from him. All right, what's iniquity? Sin and shame and shortcoming before the Lord. We're also told that new white clothing represents being declared clean, being declared righteous before God. And this is a picture that is repeated all over the Bible. We, we take off our old self and we put on the new self, right? But hear me, do not confuse the most important part of the equation in this moment. Because the Bible's pretty clear that we're not cleaning ourselves as if we could accomplish any such thing. Now we're not the ones exchanging dirty clothes for clean clothes. No, the Bible always paints the picture that we are passively being clothed. The righteousness we possess does not come by anything of our own making. It is the righteousness of Jesus purchased for us through his righteous life and sacrificial death in our place. And this imagery is of being reclothed in white garments is repeated several times throughout the Bible, but definitely several times throughout the letter of Revelation. And so Jesus could not be any more clear in this moment. The faithful remnant, those who endure, those who conquer, they will be clothed in a way that everyone knows who they belong to. The I'm with Jesus part of following Jesus will be unmistakable on that day. There's a second picture we got to use our check down method for Names in the book of life that can never be blotted out. What in the world does that mean? Well, question one. Is it explained here? Answer, almost, but no. Apparently, it's a book with names in it. Sounds cool. It's a really big deal that your name can't be removed. Also sounds like a really big deal. Okay, question number two. Is it explained somewhere else in Revelation? The answer is absolutely yes. Over and over again, in fact, it's explained several times in chapter 13, where we learn that everyone written in this book will resist worshiping whatever the supposed beast figure is. In chapter 20, we learn that everyone whose name is not in the book will be thrown into the lake of fire. That sounds like a bad day. Right? In chapter 21, we learn that in the New Jerusalem, only those whose name are in the book will be allowed to enter in. And so, what is the book of life then? Well, the simplest terms, it appears to be the official role of those who are saved. And Jesus promises that those who belong to him will remain with him. Why? Well, because just like he's Lord and master of these churches, he is also 100% in charge of what names make it into his book. He gets to control that. He's the gatekeeper for it. There may be many in the Sardesian church who turn away from publicly standing for the name of Jesus. That, that's an issue that creates a thousand other issues. But hear me, church, the far bigger concern is whether on the day of judgment Jesus stands for them. That's a much, much more important moment. 
Jesus promises that he will be his people's advocate before the Father, but he also hints that there will be some who believe that he's supposed to be their advocate, but they have no real relationship with him. They may have faithfully attended or or invested themselves in a church, quote-unquote, that maybe a really impressive church that left everybody going, ooh, I want that. Maybe they even played some kind of sizable role in building up that supposed reputation of life. Maybe maybe they had a hand in some good things. But the perfectly attentive master and manager of the church sees through the veneer. He's not fooled by the facade, even when it's a genuinely devout one. And so the obvious question for this morning is, do you have ears to hear? Jesus says that there will be some who have ears to hear and some who don't have ears to hear. The appearance of life in a church, it's not the same thing as actual life. Those are are different. It is essential to attentively stand guard against error. It is essential to attentively make our calling and election sure. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, man, I'm glad you're hanging out with us. I really am. I hope you stick around for a long time, ask loads and loads of questions, even the annoying ones. But here's what you need to understand, though. Hanging around can never, ever save someone. It's not enough. No one in all of redemptive history has ever had their name written into the Lamb's Book of Life because of regular church attendance. It's not how that works. No one has ever in all of redemptive history had their name written into the Lamb's book of life by giving to or volunteering in some ministry or by even mentally kind of comprehending the right collection of of doctrinal truths about who Jesus is and what he came to do. Those are bad things, but they're not salvation things. They are intended to be the fruit that flows out of a right and reconciled relationship with Jesus. They follow a rejection of insufficient saviors and a clinging to the grace of Jesus alone. Without Jesus as their source, those supposedly good things are nothing but plastic fruit. They may look good from a distance, but they will never feed anyone. So if that's you, what do you need? Well, the Bible teaches that because of our sin, we are all separated relationally from God and that We are all owed the just and right punishment for that sin. The Bible calls that punishment hell. But the Bible also teaches that that God is rich in mercy and that he loves us with incredible love, that even when we are dead in our trespasses and sins, he makes us alive through the grace of Christ. How does he do that? By sending his son. The eternal son of God put on flesh and dwelt among us. He lived the sinless life that neither of us can live. And he died on the cross as an innocent substitute in your place to make full and final payment for your sin. But then he was raised again from the dead as a vindication of his perfect and sufficient righteousness. Now as the one who stands victorious over sin and the grave, he calls on you as king to respond to him in repentance and faith, to turn away from your sin and to turn to him as Savior and Lord. And you can do that today. You can You can respond to Jesus. I'd love to be helpful to you. Okay, but what about the rest of us, though? Cool. I mean, most of us in here are already followers of Jesus, so what do we do? Listen, the most loving and pastoral thing that could ever come out of my mouth in this moment is, you sure? You sure? Because there were apparently a whole bunch of really confident, spiritually-minded people running around Sardis. 
They need to be sure. Out of great love for you, don't gloss over that question. Do you know Jesus? And if the answer to that question is no, you need to understand that King Jesus has never been fooled by the facade. However, if the answer is a genuine yes, then what do we do? Well, like every week, our response is to repent of sin and lean into what God is revealing about himself in the text. And this week, and I think our response ought to take the shape of like giving a healthy moment of critique to whatever our personal definition of church life is. Church uh, vitality happens to be. It, maybe it's right in toe with what Jesus would define it as. Maybe it's not. And the good news is that our king is not fooled by the stuff that isn't. It ought to take the pressure off us. We don't have to try so hard to impress anybody. We just have to do what Jesus said to do. It's kind of freeing, actually. I'm going to pray, and we're going to sing another song. That's the time that we you know, give you to kind of put some action to what God's doing in your head and your heart. And Again, I'll be down front if you want to talk. Maybe you're here today and you need to respond in some other kind of way. Maybe that's by uh, being obedient to Jesus in baptism. Or maybe it's time to formally join our church family. Or maybe God has put it on your heart to take the gospel somewhere far away from here. It's time to make that calling public. And I'd love to help you think through whatever those next steps are. But whoever you are and however God's word is calling you to respond this morning, let's all respond together right now. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for um, a letter to a church who thought they had everything figured out. But along the way, they walked away from the only thing that mattered. I don't think that's what's going on here in our church. But I'm not so naive as to believe that I can't be blind. I can't be so convinced of life when I've chased the thing that cannot give it. We love you. Help us love you better. Drive away all competing life claims. Guard us as leadership. Guard us as church members, as just people hanging around. Guard us from chasing after the wrong thing. Who cares what the reputation is? We have you, that's enough. We love you. For those in here who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known? Open eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to know you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.